0: Chapter three of the Pit Prop Syndicate by Freeman Wills Crofts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three The Start of the Cruise Dusk was already falling when the nine p.m. Continental Boat Train pulled out of Charing Cross with Seymour Merriman in the corner of a first class compartment. It had been a glorious day of clear atmosphere and brilliant sunshine, and there was every prospect of a spell of good weather now as the train rumbled over the bridge at the end of the station sky and river presented a gorgeous color scheme of crimson and pink and gold shading off through violet and gray to nearly black through the latticing of the girders the great buildings on the northern bank showed up for a moment against the light beyond dark and somber masses with nicked and serrated tops Then the river crossed, nearer buildings intervened to cut off the view, and the train plunged into the maze and wilderness of south London. The little pleasurable excitement which Merriman had experienced when first the trip had been suggested had not waned as the novelty of the idea passed. Not since he was a boy at school had he looked forward so keenly to holidays. The launch, for one thing, would be a new experience. He had never been on any kind of cruise. The nearest approach had been a couple days' yachting on the Norfolk Broads, but he had found that monotonous and boring, and had been glad when it was over. But this, he expected, would be different. He delighted in poking about abroad, not in the great cosmopolitan hotels, which, after all, are very much the same all the world over, but where he came in contact with actual foreign life, and how better could a country be seen than by slowly motoring through its waterways? Merriman was well pleased with the prospect. And then there would be Hilliard. Merriman had always enjoyed his company, and he felt he would be an ideal companion on a tour. It was true Hilliard had got a bee in his bonnet about this lorry affair. Merriman was mildly interested in the thing, but he would never have dreamed of going back to the sawmill to investigate. But Hilliard seemed quite excited about it. His attitude, no doubt, might be partly explained by his love of puzzles and mysteries perhaps also he half believed in his absurd suggestion about the smuggling or at least felt that if it were true there was the chance of his making some coup which would also make his name how a man's occupation colours his mind thought merriman here was hilliard and because he was in the customs his ideas ran to customs operations and when he came across anything he did not understand he at once suggested smuggling if he had been a soldier, he would have guessed gun-running, and, if a politician, a means of bringing anarchist literature into the country. Well, he had not seen Madeleine Coburn. He would soon drop so absurd a notion when he had met her. The idea of her being party to such a thing was too ridiculous even to be annoying. However, Hilliard insisted on going to the mill, and he, Merriman, could then pay that call on the Coburns it would not be polite to be in the neighbourhood and not do so. And it would be impossible to call without asking Miss Coburn to come on the river. As the train rumbled on through the rapidly darkening country, Merriman began once again to picture the details of that excursion. No doubt they could have tea on board. He mustn't forget to buy some decent cakes in Bordeaux. Perhaps she would help him get it ready while Hilliard steered and pottered over his old engines he could just imagine her bending over a tea-tray her graceful figure the little brown tendrils of her hair at the edge of her tam-o-shanter her brown eyes flashing up to meet his own dover came unexpectedly soon and merriman had to postpone the further consideration of his plans until he had gone on board the boat and settled down in a corner of the smoker-room there however he fell asleep not awaking until roused by the bustle of the arrival in calais he reached Paris just before six, and drove to the Gare d'Orsay, where he had time for a bath and breakfast, before catching the 7.50 a.m. express for Bordeaux. Again it was a perfect day, and as the hours passed, and they ran steadily southward through the pleasing but monotonous central plain of France, the heat grew more and more oppressive. Poitiers was hot, angoulême was an oven, and Merriman was not sorry when at a quarter to five they came in sight of the Garonne at the outskirts of Bordeaux and a few moments later pulled up in the Bastide station. Hilliard was waiting at the platform barrier. Hello, old man,' he cried. "'Jolly to see you. Give me one of your handbags. I've got a taxi outside.' Merriman handed over the smaller of the two small suitcases he carried, having, in deference to Hilliard's warnings, left behind most of the things he wanted to bring they found the taxi and drove out at once across the great stone bridge leading from the bastide station and suburb on the east bank to the main city on the west in front of them lay the huge concave sweep of quays fronting the garonne here a river of over a quarter of a mile in width with behind the massed buildings of the town out of which here and there rose church spires and farther downstream the three imposing columns of the place des quinconces some river this merriman said looking up and down the great sweep of water rather i have the swallow alongside a private wharf farther upstream rather tumble down old shanty but it's easier than mooring in the stream and rowing out we'll go and leave your things aboard and then we can come uptown again and get some dinner Right, O merriman agreed having crossed the bridge they turned to the left upstream and ran along the quays towards the south After passing the railway bridge, the taxi swung down towards the water's edge, stopping at a somewhat decrepit enclosure, over the gate of which was the legend André Leblanc, Location des Canaux. Hilliard jumped out, paid the taxi-man, and, followed by Merriman, entered the enclosure. It was a small place, with a wooden quay along the river frontage, and a shed at the opposite side. Between the two lay a number of boats trade appeared to be bad, for there was no life about the place, and everything was dirty and decaying." "'There she is!' Hilliard cried, with a ring of pride in his voice. "'Isn't she a beauty?' The swallow was tied up alongside the wharf, her bow upstream, and lay tugging at her mooring ropes in the swift run of the ebb-tide. Merriman's first glance at her was one of disappointment. He had pictured a graceful craft of well-polished wood, with white deck-planks, shining brasswork, and cushioned seats. Instead, he saw a square-built, clumsy-looking boat, painted, where the paint was not worn off, a sickly greenish-white, and giving a general impression of dirt and want of attention. She was flush-decked, and sat high in the water, with a freeboard of nearly five feet. A little forward of amidships was a small deck-cabin containing a brass wheel and a binnacle aft of the cabin in the middle of the open space of the deck was a skylight the top of which formed two short seats placed back to back forward rose a stumpy mast carrying a lantern cage near the top and still farther forward almost in the bows lay an unexpectedly massive anchor housed in grids with behind it a small hand winch for pulling in the chain we had a bit of a blow coming round the cubra into the river hilliard went on enthusiastically and i tell you she didn't ship a pint the cabin bone dry and green water comin' over her all the time merriman could believe it though his temporary home was not beautiful he could see that she was strong in fact she was massive but he thanked his stars he had not assisted in the test he shuddered at the very idea thinking gratefully that to reach bordeaux the paris orleans railway was good enough for him but realizing it was expected of him, he began praising the boat till the unsuspecting Hilliard believed him as enthusiastic as himself. Yes, she's all of that. He agreed. Come aboard and see the cabin. They descended a flight of steps let into the front of the wharf, wet, slippery ooze covered steps left bare by the receding tide, and stepping over the side, entered the tiny deck-house. "'This is the chart-house, shelter, and companion-way all in one,' Hilliard explained. "'All the engine-controls come up here, and I can reach them with my left hand while steering with my right,' he demonstrated as he spoke, and Merriman could not but agree that the arrangements were wonderfully compact and efficient. "'Come below now,' went on the proud owner, disappearing down a steep flight of steps against one wall of the house the hull was divided into three compartments amidships the engine-room with its twin engines forward a store containing among other things a collapsible boat and aft a cabin with lockers on each side a folding-table between them and a marble-topped cupboard on which was a primus stove the woodwork was painted the same greenish-white as the outside but it was soiled and dingy and the whole place looked dirty and untidy there was a smell of various oils paraffin predominating you take the port locker, Hilliard explained. You see, the top of it lifts, and you can stow your things in it. When there are only two of us, we sleep on the lockers. You'll find a sheet and blanket inside. There's a board underneath that turns up to keep you in if she's rolling. Not that we shall want it until we get to the Mediterranean. I'm afraid, he went on, answering Merriman's unspoken thought, the place is not very tidy. I hadn't time to do much squaring. I'll tell you about that later. I suppose reluctantly we had better turn to and clean up a bit before we go to bed but brightening up again not now let's go uptown and get some dinner as soon as you are ready he fussed about explaining with the loving and painstaking minuteness of the designer as well as the owner the various contraptions the boat contained and when he had finished merriman felt that could he but remember his instructions there were few situations with which he could not cope or by which he could be taken unawares A few minutes later the two friends climbed once more up the slippery steps and, strolling slowly up the town, entered one of the large restaurants in the Place de la Comédie. Since Merriman's arrival Hilliard had talked vivaciously, and his thin, hawk-like face had seemed even more eager than the wine-merchant had ever before seen it. At first the latter had put it down to the natural interest of his own arrival, the showing of the boat to a newcomer, and the start of the cruise generally. But as dinner progressed, he began to feel there must be some more tangible cause for the excitement his friend was so obviously feeling. It was not Merriman's habit to beat about the bush. "'What is it?' he asked, during a pause in the conversation. "'What is what?' returned Hilliard, looking uncomprehendingly at his friend. "'Wrong with you. Here you are, jumping about as if you were on pins and needles, and gabbing at the rate of a thousand words a minute. What's all the excitement about?' I'm not excited, Hilliard returned seriously, but I admit to being a little interested by what has happened since we parted that night in London. I haven't told you yet. I was waiting until we had finished dinner and could settle down. Let's go and sit in the jardin and you shall hear. Leaving the restaurant, they strolled to the place de Quinconces, crossed it, and entered the jardin public. The band was not playing, and— though there were a number of people about the place was by no means crowded and they were able to find under a large tree set back a little from one of the walks two vacant chairs here they sat down enjoying the soft evening air warm but no longer too warm and watching the promenading bordelais yes hilliard resumed as he lit a cigar i have had quite an interesting time you shall hear i got hold of maxwell of the telephones who is a yachtsman and who was going to spain on holidays well the boat was laid up at southampton and we got down about midday on monday week we spent that day overhauling her and getting in stores and on tuesday we ran down the channel putting in to dartmouth for the night and to fill with petrol the next day was our big day across to brest something like one hundred and seventy miles mostly open sea and with ushant at the end of it a beastly place generally foggy and always with bad currents we intended to wait in the dart for good weather and we wired the meteorological office for forecasts it happened that on tuesday night there was a first-rate forecast so on wednesday we decided to risk it we slipped out past the old castle at dartmouth at five a m had a topping run and were in brest at seven that evening there we filled up again and next day thursday we made st nazaire at the mouth of the loire we had intended to make a long day of it on friday and come right here but as i told you it came on to blow a bit off the coubre and we could only make the mouth of the river we put into a little place called le verdon just inside the point de grove that's the end of that fork of land on the southern side of the gironde estuary on saturday we got here about midday hunted around found that old wharf and moored maxwell went on the same evening to spain hilliard paused while merriman congratulated him on his journey yes we hadn't bad luck he resumed but that really wasn't what i wanted to tell you about i had brought a fishing rod and outfit and on sunday i took a car and drove out along the bayonne road until i came to your bridge over that river the lesque i find it is i told the chap to come back for me at six and i walked down the river and did a bit of prospecting The works were shut, and by keeping the mill building between me and the manager's house, I got close up and had a good look round unobserved. At least I think I was unobserved. Well, I must say, the whole business looked genuine. There's no question those tree cuttings are pit props, and I couldn't see a single thing in the slightest degree suspicious. I told you there could be nothing really wrong, Merriman interjected i know you did but wait a minute i got back to the forest again in the shelter of the mill building and i walked around through the trees and chose a place for what i wanted to do next morning i decided to spend the day watching the lorries going to and from the works and i naturally wished to remain unobserved myself the wood as you know is very open the trees are thick but there is very little undergrowth and it's nearly impossible to get decent cover but at last i found a little hollow with a mound between it and the lane and road just a mere irregularity in the surface like what a tommy would make when he began to dig himself in i thought i could lie there unobserved and see what went on with my glass i have a very good prism monocular twenty-five diameter magnification with a splendid definition from my hollow i could just see through the trees vehicles passing along the main road but i had a fairly good view of the lane for at least half its length THE VIEW, OF COURSE, WAS BROKEN BY THE STEMS, BUT I SHOULD BE ABLE TO TELL IF ANY GAMES WERE TRIED ON. I MADE SOME INNOCENT-LOOKING MARKINGS SO AS TO FIND THE PLACE AGAIN, AND THEN WENT BACK TO THE RIVER, AND SO TO THE BRIDGE, AND MY TAXI. HILLIARD PAUSED AND DREW AT HIS CIGAR. MERRIMAN DID NOT SPEAK. HE WAS LEANING FORWARD, HIS FACE SHOWING THE INTEREST HE FELT. NEXT MORNING—THAT WAS YESTERDAY—I TOOK ANOTHER TAXI AND RETURNED TO THE BRIDGE, AGAIN DRESSED AS A FISHERMAN. I had brought some lunch and i told the man to return for me at seven in the evening then i found my hollow lay down and got out my glass i was settled there a little before nine o'clock it was very quiet in the wood i could hear faintly the noise of the saws at the mill and a few birds were singing otherwise it was perfectly still nothing happened for about half an hour then the first lorry came i heard it for some time before i saw it it passed very slowly along the road from bordeaux then turned into the lane and went along it at almost walking pace with my glass i could see it distinctly and it had a label-plate same as you described and was number six it was empty the driver was a young man clean-shaven and fair-haired a few minutes later a second empty lorry appeared coming from bordeaux it was number four and the driver was i am sure the man you saw he was like your description of him at all events this lorry also passed along the lane towards the works there was a pause then for an hour or more about half past ten the number four lorry with your friend appeared coming along the lane outward bound it was heavily loaded with firewood and i followed it along going very slowly and bumping over the inequalities of the lane when it got to a point about a hundred yards from the road at afterwards i found an s-curve which cut off the view in both directions it stopped and the driver got down i need not tell you that i watched him carefully and merriman what do you think i saw him do change the number plate suggested merriman with a smile change the number plate repeated hilliard as i'm alive that's exactly what he did first on one side then on the other he changed the four to a one he took the one plates out of his pocket and put the four plates back instead and the whole thing took just a couple of seconds as if the plates slipped in and out of a holder then he hopped up into his place again and started off what do you think of that goodness only knows merriman returned slowly an extraordinary business isn't it well that lorry went on out of sight i waited there until after six and four more passed "'About eleven o'clock, number six with the clean-shaven driver passed out loaded, "'so far as I could see, with firewood. "'That was the one that passed in empty at nine. "'Then there was a pause until half-past two, "'when your friend returned with his lorry. "'It was empty this time, and it was still number one. "'But I'm blessed, Merriman, if he didn't stop at the same place "'and change the number back to four. "'Lord!' said Merriman tersely, "'now almost as much interested as his friend.' It only took a couple of seconds and then the machine lumbered on towards the mill i was pretty excited i can tell you but i decided to sit tight and wait developments the next thing was the return of the number six lorry and the clean-shaven driver you remember it had started out loaded at about eleven it came back empty shortly after the other say about a quarter to three it didn't stop and there was no change made with its number then there was another pause at half past three your friend came out again with another load this time he was driving number one and i waited to see him stop and change it but he didn't do either sailed away with the number remaining one queer isn't it merriman nodded and hilliard reserved i stayed where i was still watching but i saw no more lorries but i saw miss coburn pass about ten minutes later At least I presume it was Miss Coburn. She was dressed in brown and was walking smartly along the lane towards the road. In about an hour she passed back. Then, about five minutes past five, some workmen went by. Evidently the day ends at five. I waited until the coast was clear and then went down to the lane and had a look round where the lorry had stopped and saw it was a double bend and therefore the most hidden point. I walked back through the wood to the bridge, picked up my taxi, and got back here about half-past seven. There was silence for some minutes after Hilliard ceased speaking. Then Merriman asked, "'How long did you say those lorries were away unloading?' "'About four hours.' "'That would have given them time to unload in Bordeaux.' "'Yes. An hour and a half, the same out, and an hour in the city. Yes, that part of it is evidently right enough.' Again silence reigned, and again Merriman broke it with a question. "'You have no theory yourself?' "'Absolutely none.' "'Do you think that driver mightn't have some private game of his own on? "'Be somehow doing the syndicate?' "'What about your own argument?' answered Hilliard. "'Is it likely Miss Coburn would join the driver in anything shady? "'Remember, your impression was that she knew.' Merriman nodded. "'That's right,' he agreed continually slowly. "'Supposing for a moment it was smuggling, "'how would that help you to explain this affair?' "'It wouldn't. I can get no light anywhere.' The two men smoked silently each busy with his thoughts a certain aspect of the matter which had always lain subconsciously in merriman's mind was gradually taking concrete form it had not assumed much importance when the two friends were first discussing their trip but now that they were actually at grips with the affair it was becoming more obtrusive and merriman felt it must be faced he therefore spoke again you know old man there's one thing I'm not quite clear about this affair that you've discovered is extraordinarily interesting and all that but i'm hanged if i can see what business of ours it is hilliard nodded swiftly i know he answered quickly the same thing has been bothering me i felt really mean yesterday when that girl came by as if i were spying on her you know i wouldn't care to do it again but i want to go on to this place and see into the thing farther and so do you i don't know that i do specially we both do Hilliard reiterated firmly, and were both justified. See here. Take my case first. I'm in the customs department, and it is part of my job to investigate suspicious import trades. Am I not justified in trying to find out if smuggling is going on? Of course I am. Besides, Merriman, I can't pretend not to know that if I brought such a thing to light I should be a made man. Mind you, we're not out to do these people any harm, only to make sure they're not harming us. Isn't that sound?" that may be all right for you but i can't see that the affair is any business of mine i think it is hilliard spoke very quietly i think it's your business and mine the business of any decent man there's a chance that miss coburn may be in danger we should make sure merriman sat up sharply in heaven's name what do you mean hilliard he cried fiercely what possible danger could she be in well suppose there is something wrong only suppose i say as the other shook his head impatiently if there is it'll be on a big scale and therefore the men who run it won't be over squeamish again if there's anything miss coburn knows about it oh yes she does he repeated as merriman would have dissented there is your own evidence but if she knows about some large shady undertaking she undoubtedly may be in both difficulty and danger at all events as long as the chance exists it's up to us to make sure merriman rose to his feet and began to pace up and down his head bent and a frown on his face hilliard took no notice of him and presently he came back and sat down again you may be right he said i'll go with you to find that out and that only but i'll not do any spying hilliard was satisfied with his diplomacy i quite see your point he said smoothly and i confess i think you are right we'll go and take a look round and if we find things are all right we'll come away again and there's no harm done that agreed merriman nodded what's the program then he asked i think tomorrow we should take the boat round to the lesk it's a good long run and we mustn't be late getting away would five be too early for you five no i don't mind if we start now the tide begins to ebb at four by five we shall get the best of its run We should be out of the river by nine, and in the Lesk by four in the afternoon. Though that mill is only seventeen miles from here as the crow flies, it's a frightful long way round by sea—most of a hundred and thirty miles, I should say. Hilliard looked at his watch. Eleven o'clock. Well, what about going back to the swallow and turning in? They left the jardin, and sauntering slowly through the well-lighted streets, reached the launch, and went on board. End of chapter 3